There's a conversation going on right now around the microphone with three of my guests who were three, how shall we put it, dramatic, colorful, and indeed key figures of what happened 20 years ago in Chicago. There was a Democratic convention, as you know. Some of the listeners of this program may be 20 years old or 19. It may seem like ancient history. And this is the 20th anniversary of the Democratic convention and all that went along with it. And we know there was a trial and uh, three of the defendants of the trial are round and about here, 20 years have passed, Dave Dellinger, Abby Hoffman, and Bobby Seale. And the question is, what's happened in 20 years? But before that, I thought it might be interesting as we sit around and talk, this be a roundtable conversation, is for many of us who they are, where they came from, and how they come, came to do what they did and what they think now, some 20 years later, about not themselves so much as where we are, the country. Let's start with a matter of seniority, Abby and Bobby. Dave, a matter of seniority. Dave Dellinger. <laughs> I don't know where to start. The architect. <laughs> you yourself yeah. from Massachusetts. Well, I grew up in a s suburb of Massachusetts in the 20s, really. I was born in 1915. And I think that uh, there were other things, but what happened to me was that when I got to junior high school, it was the first time everybody in town was in the same school or, you know, from all the neighborhoods. So I made the mistake of falling in love with a, an Irish girl. And in Boston, or in the suburbs of Boston at that point, the Irish were like the blacks were in some other places. You were of an upper-class wasp family. I so was... Uh, a descendant uh, of Benjamin Franklin. That's right, and a Cherokee and Indian, a Cherokee though. Indian. But I was 65 years old before I knew about the Cherokee Indian because my <laughs> parents didn't like to talk about it. And once I remember saying, gee, don't we have any Indian blood in us? And no, no, no. But after they were dead, yeah. I found out. Yeah. But, but anyway, I, uh, I, just to, to oversimplify matters, I fell in love with a poor Irish girl I was a good athlete, and, and one of my best, uh, you know, we played on teams together, was an Italian boy. And in Wakefield, Massachusetts, in the 20s, and well, in the 20s when this was, uh, in my neighborhood, you weren't allowed to associate uh, seriously with Italians and Irish. So that introduced me to the class system and the racial aspects of the society. And I... I I don't mean to say that that's everything, but that that at a very early age uh, opened my eyes to yeah. some of the realities. The land of the free where everybody was born equal, but you weren't supposed yeah. to fall in love with somebody from the wrong class or the wrong ethnic By group. the way, you also were, I know this, you were considered in Wakefield the athlete of the half century. You, you were... Well, in 1950, yeah. what happened was they had some kind of a thing. and. Yeah, for the first half century. But if you compare, like, my times in running or what I could yeah. accomplish, nowadays they yeah. make it such a big But this a is a beginning. Deal. Now we know the sort of background you came <laughs> yeah. from, and we come to your father in a moment. Abby Hoffman. That's what made him so good at sit-ins. <laughs> <laughs> Abby, your case. You're also in Massachusetts. Uh, Worcester, Worcester uh, yeah, working-class town, working-class neighborhood, uh, my earliest recollections uh, go back to the crib. Uh, <laughs> my my father and mother had poker games, and I'd be crying, and they'd say, uh-oh, here comes trouble. <laughs> they were right. <laughs> but I just started doing it right off. I mean, uh, in schoolyards, I would see bullies fight little kids, and I would, even though I was little, I'd take on the kids' fight. I was so well-known in my block. This is not... Uh, a common way to react in your neighborhood. So I, I was uh, very well known even from an early age. Yeah, And your father, fairly conservative guy. Uh, immigrant, uh, um, product of the Depression, um, voted for Dewey, uh, uh, fond of uh, shaking his finger and saying things like... Uh, the whole world's wrong and you're right, and me just saying, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> we can, Bobby so, uh, Seal, we can, then we'll believe it all. Bobby Seal. Actually, uh, I'm out of Texas, East Texas. Uh, my grandfather built Wilgate, Texas. He's a master carpenter. Uh, Roots-wise, my name come from Old Man Seal. He was a white man who owned the bank that... Uh, my great-grandmother and great-grandfather who worked for him, they adopted the name because my great-grandmother was 16 years old when the Emancipation Proclamation came about. Anyway, 
through Texas and then to California. I wound up there in World War II and lived in a way that was uh, basically poor because my father really threw away his money. Actually, my father had a brand new car all the way through the Depression, believe it or not. <laughs> People would believe that. I wound up going to the United States Air Force for three years, 11 months and 11 days, and got kicked out when I ran into racism for the first time, but I still had no politics. Came out, became a stand-up comedian, and was already somewhat a jazz drummer. I moved from there and wound up, believe it or not, working uh, at Kaiser Aerospace Electronics on the Gemini Missile Project when it was putting the satellites up then for two years. And one day discovered, after I read a book by Jomo Kenyatta facing Mount Kenya, I discovered that Tarzan did not run Africa. I was being <laughs> loose with the brainwashing. And the next thing I know, I'm uh, taking some of these comedic skills and integrating them with speaking on the street corners at Merritt College. And I wound up... Um, watching a bunch of peaceful demonstrators, as Huey P. Newton and I used to say, who were exercising the First Amendment of the Constitution, getting their heads beat for four years. And through all of that, Huey and I created the Black Panther Party. And Ronnie Reagan jumps up and calls me a hoodlum. Later, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, rest his racist soul, uh, said I was a threat to the internal security of America. So that's, that's and uh, <laughs> I wound up at the 19... Uh, conspiracy trial because I came here to speak about dismantling racism and stopping this crazy war. So what we have here is under the beginnings, haven't we? Now it's open. Now now uh, one thing leads to another as far as Dave and Abby and Bobby are concerned. You were seminarian too, minister, and then yeah, things was, popped. Things popped. Yeah. Well, I wasn't a minister, actually, but yeah. I went to seminary. Yeah. When the draft came along, I was exempt if I registered. World War II you're to, talking about. Yeah, actually it was before World yeah. War II, 1940. Mm. So that's really a, another very prime uh, causal factor in my life, going to prison for three years. For, and as, a, as, as a protest of World as War II. A, yeah, a, a war objector. Yeah. War objector. Yeah. I didn't like to call myself a conscientious no. objector because that like set you aside, just like I didn't want to be set aside as a clergyman exempt. Hmm. So forth, but anyway, living in in prison with th for three years with people who, many of whom had done terrible things, but you know, it really opened my eyes more again to the nature of society. It was like the society writ large with the kid gloves off, and you could see what what uh, what the society rests on: the violence, the coercion. I think the, the personal stories that you hear of us are very typically American and typically of the '60s, because. Uh, when the unions were wiped out in the 30s by a combination of uh, FBI and gangsters and corruption, and uh, then because of World War II and the witch hunts in the 50s, <clears throat> in a sense, uh, uh, social change, uh, there wasn't a trade union movement there to create social change. There wasn't a third party that reflected our political views. Um, most of the people wouldn't have been raised in uh, as red diaper babies, so to speak. So at some point along the line, their vision of Mer their mythology of what America was about clashed with what the reality they found. Yeah. Uh, lynchings in the South or not being allowed to, to have freedom of speech yeah. or the FBI coming through the window of the files, and that just shocked us all. Yeah, if I got up on the corner and said, when in the course of human events or when a long train of abuses and quoted the... The, uh, the, 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 what is it, 1776? Declaration. Declaration of Independence and did it sincerely, etc. I was considered un American, but I was citing the very damn thing that founded, the uh, principles that founded the Darren country, you know. That's Sorry. A good point. So you guys are coming out the 50s, the, that's what we call the silent 50s is now ending. Out of it come, uh, end of World War II, a certain prosperity, then comes. Civil Rights Movement, Martin Luther King, Absolutely. and Vietnam. And now along the 60s comes... Yeah, I think Vietnam. that a lot of people uh, underestimate today the significance of the black activists in the Civil Rights Movement in the South creating the spirit which did away with McCarthyism and, and inspired... Of course, I was older, but inspired a lot of white youth that gave them hope, you know, a sense that... that, that you could stand up for, for decency and for justice, and you could, you might have to get beaten over the head or tear yeah. gas, but you, you could have some positive results. There, there is a kind of mythology that we were all kind of born here in the streets of Chicago and in the, in, the, in the riots, 
but um, <coughs> many of us, the, certainly the organizers, the 60s began in 1960, yeah, well, began with the civil rights movement. Yeah. and uh, You and we, I were both in the South. Right. And I was in jail so, in Albany, Georgia. Indeed, when I was at, uh, and you were at the convention over. in Atlanta just a couple yeah. months ago at the Democratic convention, more reporters wanted me to make comparisons to 68, but I was really reflecting back to 1965 to the voter registration drive in Georgia was arrested six times, beaten by the Klan, and the police were the Klan. And then to see the changes that had gone on in Georgia, to hear Jesse Jackson and to know all the names where, you know, the other delegates can't relate to all these, the martyrs that he's listing who fought and lost their lives. Right. I mean, there were tears in my eyes, and you can see that there is still hope for change in America because there was a different Georgia. Yeah. Because you want to come to that as we go along. This is open now. It's not a question of each one. We come to the question, the big question, of course, will come up as we talk about Chicago reflecting on that, the 20 years, what has happened. You know, we're told, we saw the movie The Big Chill, which I didn't believe for a single moment. I didn't believe these guys ever took part in anything. I didn't see it. No, but the point is we've been told, a part of the new mythology is that the 60s people have all become... Uh, entrepreneurs on their own and have sort of not disavowed but just brushed away the the visions and the thoughts of, of the 60s. You, what's your answer to that, Abby? Well, mythology like history is just controlled by the powers that be. So naturally, they're, uh, uh, it's ironic that uh, although we've had Platoon, I think, is a breakthrough in terms of how we look at the war in Vietnam, there's never been a movie that's been a breakthrough to actually see what the 60s were like in this country. So we're only allowed to look at nostalgically over our shoulder now that we've realized yeah. our excesses, our mistakes, and we've grown up. It's still too controversial for, uh, for Hollywood. I think it'll take uh, another few years for them to actually look at what happened in this country. And it's not only but Hollywood. It's like, it's, as you referred to the silent generation. Now, the 50s I was so uh, in the fifties, yeah. right? I was active in the fifties, and there were there were you know there was restlessness, and there were things happening, but it was a period in which there was also some demoralization, and a lot of energy had gone into World War II, either with it or against it, and so forth. But um, nowadays. But, but but it was there, and you know, and and it took like Rosa Parks uh, became the spark, you know, the symbol of the Black Revolt and and all the rest of it, and I think uh, nowadays people are trying. The media is trying to prove that everybody, as you say, everybody has has gone the other way. I think of being interviewed for an article in Parade Magazine, you know, the Sunday supplement, yeah. all over the country, and I did. I spent an afternoon being interviewed. And uh, then uh, nothing happened and nothing happened. You know, a long lead time, I figured. Then I got a call from the author saying Parade Magazine wanted to, me to interview people from the 60s, but they didn't want me to interview anybody who was still active today. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah. That yeah. Because Bobby. Well, I don't know. It's, it's, um, me, I just hang to what I believe I was sincere when I got into this. I was probably one of the only people who had a one-man riot when Malcolm X was killed uh, right up the street from my house. Um, a, you, you get to a point that either you believe in something that's right for humanity uh, or you uh, sh 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 slough it off, you know, you, 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 you take cheap chances. I think Aldrich Cleaver has taken a cheap chance with what he supposedly tried to attempt to represent in the past. Um, I stand on my principles. I stand on what I believe in. I mean, I believe right now, today, I believe in a people's revolutionary cooperational humanism here at home in America and the world over. I literally believe in that. Uh, people say, what do you mean by revolution? I mean trying to revolve more political and economic power back into the hands of the people. Um, I, you know, um, I had 26 people in the Black Panther Party killed, you know, and um, you look back on that, as a lot of people that's dead, there's a lot of black brothers and sisters who worked in that organization of mine. There's a lot of buddies and friends are who we call this with, with SDS, Peace and Freedom Party, the Yippies and the Yuppies, Yippies back in those days. And I just feel that a person who shifts off and goes the other way did either didn't have the realization or didn't have the perspective or sense to understand that either you stand for democratic human rights of some kind 
or you're jiving yourself, you know, I don't know. Yeah, well, let's come to that matter about what is happening today in the various grassroots groups that are around and about that don't make six o'clock. But let's take our first break. We'll resume with Dave Dellinger, Abby Hoffman, and Bobby Seal, who are three figures quite well remembered. And perhaps not by those 1920. We've got to come to that matter of break in history, if there's such a thing as, you know, absence of memory. We've got to come to that thing, too. <laughs> and we can also talk about, there's a new cookbook, by the way. <laughs> it got a rave review, Bobby Seal's cookbook, Barbecue with Bobby. And he's also assistant dean at uh, Temple University. We have to talk about those developments. We were just talking uh, with Abby Hoffman, Dave Dellinger, and Bobby Seal, thinking about uh, 20 years ago in Chicago. But I was just about to ask about the young people you run into today who were born then, or 2019. Frank Wilkinson, I know he's a friend of Dave, who's been a scrapper for civil liberties all his life, mm -hmm. except he began as a very conservative young guy at Stanford University in the late 20s. He was head of Young Americans for Herbert Hoover, but he also has the biggest FBI file on record. So he's talking to college kids about First Amendment, and he's going to make a joke. And he says, why would a guy who's for Herbert Hoover be tailed by the FBI? He thought they're going to laugh because it's kind of funny. Right. Silence, and then the awful truth mm -hmm. hit him. That is, Herbert Hoover, my young friends, was president of the United States during the thirties and the uh, late and early thirties and Great Depression. Then they howled. They got the joke. They didn't know <laughs> Herbert Hoover was, which leads, of course, yeah. to a big question. Oh, I have hundreds of those. When Bobby mentioned Malcolm X, I've actually had a student stand oh, up and. Uh, asked me if I knew Malcolm Ten. Yeah, I, I was going to say that. <laughs> yeah. I've had the same experience, but I didn't want to take uh, your punch. Who's this guy, Malcolm Ten? Uh, yeah, Malcolm. What was uh, that? Last month, someone Malcolum asked me Tin. if I tried you know, LDS. The guy with the X. <laughs> now, yeah. which leads to a question: Do you? We're, un we're unstuck as a society historically. We're just unstuck. Um, do you find this is so, David? Do you find other cases too about coming out to the new well, generation? I, uh, coming out when? To the new generation. Yeah, but I think, you know, one of the things I learned in the 60s, now Abby may be middle-aged now, as he said, but I was almost double his age at the time we were put on trial. But one of the things I learned during that period was that every new generation comes along with new insights and, and ideas that the older generation doesn't. Albert Camus once said, beware of all veterans. And I think he he meant anti-war veterans as well as veterans. And what I've learned, I'm i you'd be amazed. I, I go around to get invited to high schools a lot, and sure, I know things they don't know, and they don't know the names. You know, if I mention Fred Hampton, who was murdered by the police here in Chicago, they have no idea who he was. But on the other hand, they they can raise questions. They can they can they have a, a perspective. You know, veterans have insights, but they're also scarred. And I think it's just one of the very yeah, well, important lessons I learned example. is to listen to young people. This conference uh, will be a different kind of history. Yeah, this well, will be uh, uh, the people's history. Dave was raised to keep it. Bobby, you were you were at Temple University. Yeah, but in '85, I did I debated a white South Africana citizen at 22 colleges around the country. We hit University of Maryland at Baltimore. Over 1,200 students were in there. Now, there was quite a few older people who knew who I was. With the presentation of the format, I didn't give a background to myself. Some young lady at the courts didn't answer, period, standing up, and she says, now, Mr. Seal, was, is, is, are you either a basketball player or a jazz drummer? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean well, but what I respected drummer. was that there were 1,200 students <laughs> in there to deal and hear yeah. about this debate because they, they were they concerned the 60s, about the inhumanity so. going on in South Africa. Now, I got a chance to explain who I was, but my, I'm saying... See, now we're coming to something. Yeah. See, Bobby and Dave both raised... I, I offered from one point of view and you did now. They came up with something else. There is something going on. Now, the oh, headlines yeah. tell us absence of memory. That, you know, nothing is there. Oh, there's but a great now, longing for that period. Yeah. Ah, there, there was a poll, uh, USA Today, CNN, uh, taken two years ago from uh, age 16 to 21. Pick any period in history you'd rather live overwhelmingly. Uh, something like 68, 69% said the 60s, the United States. That's when they wanted to be young. And they have a tremendous uh, uh, longing. Not, I, I don't mean just uh, progressive students, all kind of youth. They know there, were, there is a legacy that existed that young people 
took on the powers that be and in cases won, that they were active and they they feel a measure of guilt and they feel a measure of admiration and they're they're starting to come alive. The last three or four years are quite different than Oh, we're looking at South Africa that Bobby mentioned, oh, yes. the CIA, the, the whole war issue, the nuclear testing. I believe that there, remember that I also was alive and cutting my political teeth in the Depression. I believe that there are more people alienated from the American system of values, official values, you know, of make as much money as you can and rise above your neighbors instead of rising together with them. More people alienated from that approach to life than at any other time in my lifetime. The pro thing is now, I, don't, I start to say this the problem, is a, it's, a, it's both a, a problem and, and, and an advantage, is that now it's not two issues like civil rights and Vietnam War. It's all, in every area of society. People are questioning the values. There are experiments going on. There are people protesting here for lesbian and gay rights, for example, for women's rights, for the uh, environment. You put it all together, I believe that there are more people that are actually arrested, to take one criterion, arrested for nonviolent civil disobedience today than in any, any year it's of the 60s. It's a different time, though, and a different moment, Dave. And although I agree but with Dave, scattered. and I'm very much, as much a political activist as I was then, uh, the, the numbers, the, uh, the economy is different, and uh, we are a civilization on the decline. That's it. I mean, we are on the decline. So we're not dealing with the same kind of uh, populace, the same kind of... Just look, we're, we're here celebrating the great victory of the <laughs> Battle of Chicago. We have the actor-in-chief, the biggest phony in the century in the White House. We have George Bush ahead nine points in the poll. We have... You know, what What talks like a hawk and runs like a chicken? Well, <laughs> come to this city before the veterans of foreign wars, and, and they're all cheering him, not even knowing that he's voted against every veteran benefit bill that ever came by his nose. Every civil the rights bill. The special effects, the manipulation of people. Uh, the idea that there's no more news, it's eyewitness news, instant news, action-packed news. Uh, has just made us so unstuck uh, as a civilization that we are on the decline, and this is what the decline looks like. <coughs> this the is the it. Call, the call TV bites. That is, goes for 11, 12 seconds, and that's it. Then yeah, now you have a yeah, national Senator, newspaper which that. is modeled on TV, no. which means, again, the quick bite, but no but thought, no, no death. Well, Abby has raised the point that seems you've been on the, <coughs> been on the pessimistic side at the same time Dave is saying something here there is more activism it doesn't make six o'clock news it is not the civil right. rights movement or Vietnam but stopping a toxic waste dump somewhere or stopping a predatory developer or an outrageous utility hike and you got as you say, hundreds of those yes, groups. Yes, absolutely. Grassroots more. So we have two things going on. Abby's right and you're right. Yes. Yeah, and as That's a matter of fact, if you take the uh, Jesse Jackson uh, Rainbow Coalition presidential campaign, I mean, he got 7 million votes from people who are unhappy with the way things are and who responded to his vision of a better world. I was going to ask uh, Bobby here, since you're the assistant dean at Temple University mm -hmm. of Philadelphia, what about the students you encounter there? Well, the students are broadly hooked up the same way. They don't get any information. They don't get any substance, you know. What we tried to do there last year is to create a framework by which we can motivate students in the community service and actual community activism and protest efforts and created even a class where they could get four credit hours for it, you know, and they would intern themselves in these particular kinds of programs. Now, I helped coordinate that. I brought Dave there. I brought Abby there. I brought some of the other Chicago 7 and 8 there. I was there. Uh, Yolanda King, what have you, et cetera. Now, to try to get these students to grab a hold of that, you know, and relate it to even academic credit, you know, we created our own back in the 60s. We, 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 we practically dropped out of college, you know, and went out there and created the very programs and, and dealt with the problems on many different kinds of levels, you know. So... Um, that's what I'm doing at Temple. I wrote a cookbook. People say, why don't you write a cookbook? I says, well, Ronnie Reagan really inspired me because he took away our $150,000 worth of grants. When he became president, we lost 13 cedar workers. It was wiped out straight away. We was doing community organizing training seminars with those grants around the country in various cities, you know. 
And uh, I says, gosh, I got to come up with some kind of cash flow money idea because he used to raise a lot of money in the old Black Panther Party days. So I says, write the cookbook. Jane Fonda wrote this other kind of, of book of aerobics. I've been cooking since I was 12 years old. Maybe I can raise some cash, put some of this stuff into my three different nonprofit corporations, get some grants and stuff to motivate some students to plug into something. In other words, you have to build a framework for students and people or students well, you know, Bobby, to plug uh, into. We haven't talked much about the women's movement, which is a very important yeah. development. Let's say mm -hmm. that just, and they talk, yeah. well, I just want to say the no. personal and the political. Yeah. You see, the problem with the 60s was there was a tendency in certain circles yeah. to be one-dimensional political. Today, it's at a deeper level in which the personal and the political are brought together. Now, I mean, I want to bring up the women's right. movement, yeah. which would just start with that and the various other ones that have come about. And of course, Abby and you and Bobby, all three can speak of that. And also the difficulties that were there involving genderism or sexism sure. within the very protesters themselves, uh, movements. And, and you, your father, something about your father hits me. This, We're uh, talking here to, to Abby Hoffman <laughs> and Dave Dellinger and Bobby Seal. This is the anniversary, roughly, of the Chicago Convention and all that happened here in Lincoln Park and Grant Park. And the world is watching was the key. And these three guys were right smack in the middle of it. They were three of the seven. I was, I was a uh, conspiracy eight, conspiracy seven. What was it? Thousand. It was. Seven. Well, we didn't like the numbers, so we just call it Chicago <laughs> Conspiracy. That's right. We yeah. Yeah. The word means to breathe together. Yeah. See, so yeah. uh, 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 we did what, it, which is unusual in trials going on today downtown. We took the offense, yeah. so we tried to put the government on trial. So what, you know, whatever labels they stuck but, us. But, we, which leads we, to something you had said during the break, Abby. He says, you know, when I when I thought when my foot hit Michigan Avenue. Yeah, Come to, the world would change. Yeah, I, we 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 had the feeling. Einstein said it uh, in the theory of relativity: when you jump, the planet moves, and uh, we felt it then. Uh, now, <laughs> you know, you might think it intellectually, but you don't have the gut feeling that uh, you know. Well, that's, uh, the whole world's become middle aged. That's my theory. Uh, Young and you old know, alike are. I actually are came. I actually came when I was brought. When I was asked to come and speak, I was not originally scheduled. It was really right. Eldridge Cleaver. The day before Eldridge Cleaver's parole officer wouldn't let him leave the state of California, so he asked me to take his place. I did do that. I traveled out here with three party members. Those are the days you did not even get searched. But we've been attacked so much by police. I walked in and I was literally armed. Most people don't even know that. I was literally armed with a 357 Magnum under my coat. My bodyguards are my party members, associates. We were armed. The police were everywhere. You know, but it's like I had this enthusiastic attitude, and I say po we used to call police pigs, and pigs were piggyback in the sense that we walked in and around and about to where we had to go to speak at Lincoln Park, to speak at Grant Park, and it was a thing about the fact that I hope they don't attack us because something's going to erupt. You know, in one sense, I know they already erupted. They'd already beaten the heads of all these peaceful, peaceful demonstrators. So generally, I left and went back to the black community where the Black Panther Party was. But I was literally walking around, armed with a pistol, got on the plane, flew back to Oakland, California, continued my organizing. And it was a sense of I needed to feel secure. And I, it's, a, it's a bad sense to be forced into a position to know that you're ready to erupt. But it just so happened no policeman bothered me at the time. And I was thinking of, of this matter of feelings now. That Abby was saying, get a little older now. You haven't altered in your well, the question of hope is there, you know. You know yeah, but it's, it's, it's quite interesting because I didn't have that feeling when I put my foot down in Michigan Avenue. It's a difference of being older. I was 20 years mm -hmm. older yeah, than right, Abby. Right. And uh, so maybe that's why uh, I don't see such a contrast now. Why I, I see all of these things happening around, and I've been through uh, periods before when the media uh, ignored everything. Uh, when, when things were happening beneath the surface and they weren't known, and then they came out. And, and when I see all of what's going on uh, today, uh, the kind of thing that you, you know, mentioned, the, the small thing here, toxic waste, and, you know, just run through the issues. And, and, but they're not integrated. They're not put in, into one screaming headline, you know, 150,000 people here or 500,000 people there. But I know it's happening. And, and it, well, I, I think, you know, one of the things I mentioned was the environmental movement. 
And uh, I think that partly as a result of it, people are coming to understand that we are part of nature, and nature operates in seasons. And if you don't plant the seed in the springtime, you won't have a harvest in the fall. And sometimes we're living in a period where we're planting seeds, and sometimes we're living in a period when, when it's all coming out. But it doesn't mean that the struggle has ended. I'm very much uh, more optimistic about where we're uh, at and what we're building This was an apolyptic moment here in Chicago, and it's very strange to pick up the Chicago Tribune and see an op-ed piece uh, saying uh, nothing nothing affected the political process that took place in the demonstrations here in Chicago. That's just completely ridiculous. do you know, uh, if you look at Western civilization as a whole, foreign wars of aggression are extremely popular sports. It's very rare uh, that a people will rise up against its government and demand that troops come home, and it actually happened in this country. Legal segregation, which had been a way of life, apartheid, in our country for some two or 300 years, was brought to its knees and changed. So just those two, two things that happened uh, you know, were remarkable for that period. I think what made these events unusual was that the police, a police riot did occur. I mean, the idea that you can incite a police riot is ridiculous because the police are supposed to be trained not to be incited to riot. That's a good police force. But they incited to riot, and they were given orders from the top on down. And not only to clear away the demonstrators, to beat us up wasn't news at all. All the people sitting at this table had been beaten many times in demonstrations. But to beat up uh, what we call the innocent bystanders, to beat up the press especially, it changed the whole way in which uh, the news media examined the anti-war movement in the United States and the war in Vietnam. And it was from that moment on that you can count a definite turning point in how the public was given information about the protest movement and about the war in Vietnam. What's interesting about this conversation is precisely the point that Dave and Abby are bringing up, and Bobby too, and that's that we're told that it was just a waste. It was there, nothing happened. Right. And young, something indeed that. did happen. Yeah. We're told that the protesters, in some cases, the, is the canard prolonged the war. One, it's quite obvious protest here in the millions helped shorten it. Ri- originally, yes. Yes. it wasn't eight policemen originally indicted, and those indictments Same were number. dropped. No, Same number right. that was a couple on trial couple for weeks. that. I'd forget. Man. Originally, and then yeah. it was squashed. Yeah, that, was, that was a joke. Yeah. You know. But they, know, but speaking of, of yeah. the trial, I was thinking of what Abby said about taking the offense. And it makes me think back to what was said earlier about people who have changed. Now, a couple of our defendants, I, you know, I'm appalled by their politics today. But what I remember is that when we went to trial, we decided we would not win by a technicality. We would not carry on a trial that would uh, necessarily win e- over the jury even. We would put the government on trial, and we brought witnesses in who had facts about the government which were devastating, but nonetheless who were not the kind that would appeal to a jury. You know, people who, who were, well, in those days, Allen Ginsberg, for example, I, I, shall, I shall never forget how beautiful he was on the stand, how important, as he read from his poetry, but how Tom Ferran, the prosecutor, had him read two explicitly homosexual poems and kept looking at the jury while he was doing it. And then when, when uh, Alan walked down, Tom said, fag. But anyway, I think about the fact that Jerry Rubin, I mean, I'll mention that name. I mean, I, I differ from what he's doing these days, and I wish he was j- joining Abby and me. Abby and I have been arrested together protesting, you know, aid to the Contras in, in, in Nicaragua. I wish that Jerry was with us. But I will never speak badly of right. Jerry because he put it all on the line. He was ready to go to jail for 10 years in order to do what he thought of as educating the American public as to the realities of our society. This is a good point, because we're asked this question over and over again, and it goes along with the big chill. Uh, 
There are about four or 5,000 people here, and I think FBI documents now have shown that maybe up to as many as 1,000 were state FBI. agents. Over the past 20 years, I've met 80,000 people personally who yeah. have been here. Uh, <laughs> uh, That's uh, how many, how many that baseball year, fans saw Babe Ruth point when he hit that in home In that run. year, when, when... Well, uh, I did. I was just a kid. Oh, he did. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay. Go ahead, sir. How many got the ball? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, during that year, uh, a poll was taken on campuses in 1968. The majority of students, Richard Nixon, John Wayne, were the two most popular. Most popular TV show was uh, I Love Jeannie. Most popular book was called The Money Game. And I'm convinced that's where the majority are all the time. I'm convinced that people that dumped the tea in the Boston Harbor were booed, hissed, called extremists, radicals. Right. Mm -hmm. That the people that started the American Revolution were in the mi minority. That going against the powers that be, yelling that the emperor has uh, no clothes on, being a dissident, is not the most popular sport in any society. Uh, and so what happened in Chicago was we didn't have the whole generation on that side. We had enough to make a point. That's what you need. When I tell people out there organizing, I say, look, don't look and try to get everybody. Get enough. You're going to get more than nobody. You get enough to make your point, you'll win. Because uh, that's just the way the majority's isn't, at. Isn't they it? watch a parade go by. They, they cheer or they throw rocks or whatever, but they're not in the parade. Isn't Abby really hitting the key point? It's always been a minority. The phrase, the defrocked Lutheran pastor, in Pennsylvania, Doug Roth calls the prophetic minority. Right, the prophetic minority. And this is enemies, enemy of the people, Henrik Ibsen. He's since one of the majority always been immediately right. You see, so this is what you're talking about. But there are enough behind in the you Vietnam enough, War, for yes, example. You have to have enough. There was so, and then there comes a time when it cri the, the mi minority you know, crystallizes public opinion when things are sure. ready. He reached that point in civil rights when they we had to do away. Unfortunately, we haven't achieved equality at all. But we had to do away with legal apartheid and the Vietnamese War, the Vietnam War. It had it reached the point where the public would not tolerate it anymore. But if people hadn't gone out, of course, the first couple of years when we were out there, we were attacked every time with rocks and clubs and and everything else. And it, but step by step, because a few people went out and did that, it grew to the point where the population of the United States would no longer tolerate uh, having, having that war go on. Well, was, uh, yeah, but people ask me, isn't it ironic that 20 years later we're going to be in the amphitheater? I said, what are you talking about? Four years after the 1968 convention, uh, I was ceremoniously led in the Democratic Convention in Miami Beach and sat in the seat that Mayor Daley lost uh, when his machine had collapsed right after uh, uh, those. Uh, next this, to me was Jesse like, Jackson with a dashiki and a wild haircut and, and a woman's liberation this leader. This is the 72 and was all, convention yes, you're talking so the, about. Yeah. And uh, I've been back to this town maybe 20 times. And when you talk to cops today here in Chicago, they're ashamed of what the police did in 1968. You, you go and you ask the police, what they think of what happened back then, they're ashamed. That's by way of reminding. the country, too, I mean, when I go into different cities. A lot of policemen are ashamed of what policemen were doing here yeah, and in other places, you know, around the country. And yet, you know, the policemen, as Davey the first day, were, are the, what are they? They're, they're, they're the guys in the middle, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, one thing, you know, Bobby said, yeah, yeah. It spoke about calling people pigs then. Yeah. I always objected to that. I, you know, I we, we, we place too much on, 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 mm -hmm. uh, physical violence facing it, you know. The bravest thing I ever did was not to face a gun in Albany, Georgia, but w at a meeting at the University of Michigan uh, uh, basketball stadium, you know, thousands and thousands of people there on our way to the trial. And before I spoke, everybody spoke about the pigs, you know, the people who introduced us and everything. And I took a deep breath and I say I was, I was more scared than when I faced a gun. And I said, I object to calling human beings pigs. And then I tried to talk about, about why people went into the police force and how they envisioned their thing and so forth. And to my surprise, there was not a single boo. Instead, there was a standing ovation. So deep in their hearts, yeah. people understood that. I'm, I'm going to defend the language and the imagery <laughs> that was used. Because, you see, most books that are written about that period will go right at our excesses. 
that's right. our language, etc. They won't get into the fact that Mayor Daley used the same kind but, of confrontational but, language that Sheriff yeah. Joe Woods had threatened yeah. any yippee but that he caught and give a free Dave, haircut. But, right. They were going to organize white vigilante but, groups and shove yeah. us in underground tunnels. But, so this is how you yeah. do symbolic I, warfare. It, it, if we had given in, studs, if we had said, okay, we're scared. The guards coming in. They're yeah. going to stick us in underground tunnels. They're climbing in the back door of our apartments. They're, uh, the FBI's yeah, but, already on to us. If we said, okay, we give in, my my prediction is we'd still be in Vietnam. But you didn't fighting. have we'd to... Wait, wait, wait. We didn't have to demean other human beings in order not to give in. And one of the other moments that I remember from Chicago is when we had Phil Oaks... And, we we stood uh, he and I stood on the hood or the roof of a of a station wagon, and he sang to the police. And then I read out loud something in which we said we understood what their problems were. They were working twelve hours a day. They were denied overtime pay. They thought that we were a bunch of invaders. We tried to establish some kind of, uh, That's of true. unity with them. Daly, Daly was a pig. He looked like no, a pig. Wait, he talked see, like a pig. Daly was and a pig. He created all so, the forces but, of law and order but, in his image. But, but you're he, missing Dave's point. I understand his point about humanity. Uh, and no, he's not. He, you're missing his he, point. Maybe he loves that was a definition. <laughs> not, that was a definition for a pig that we had put in because the phrase was largely well, coined out of the language pig, of the Black Panther pigs Party. Pigs are than dogs. And a pig was considered a foul trouser sir, masquerading as a victim of an unprovoked attack. Yeah. Now, what we did is we did come along following that because I had a sheriff, an ex-sheriff, out in San Francisco who went to my aid against some others, who, uh, police masquerading as a foul trouser, who brutalized me and went after those guys. But, then I had police come in later. So we redefined our approach yeah. towards them yeah. later on and say policemen are workers and there are a percentage of them act, uh, acting in the manner of a foul trouser. So we in turn shifted that term largely to the broader government, the piggish man the fascist man, I don't know, for whatever that was worth, I'm sorry. that was part of the language. I'm sorry, I, I, I understand what you're saying, I disagree. Yeah, I agree with it. Dave, okay. not a question of love of mankind. I'll put it in a different... It's a question of what is effective. Okay, what's what it reaches, was you effective? You don't demean they grabbed other a pig. people to win a point. They, they arrested our pig that we wanted to run for president, and they put it <laughs> yeah. in jail, right. and we yeah. said, look, yeah. we're running a lion. Yeah. You let the pig out, we're running a lion. <laughs> See, time out. Now, this you know, is offensive. This is yeah. symbolic. This says, look, we don't care if you put us in jail, if you shoot at us. We're still coming back at you. That's the important point. That you show that you're ready to take the risk. You're not intimidated by their force and might. This thing, I can see now it's split. You know, Abby and Bobby reveal a lot of love even when they use those terms. So I don't want too sharp a contrast, even though I disagree on this point. Now this is going to be our last slap coming up. Yes, it goes fast. Before we forget, we got to get a commercial in for Bobby Seale's book that got a rave review, by the way, the New York Times. Right. Right. It's his book on cooking. It's called right. Barbecuing with Bobby, published by 10 Speed Press. But let's, let's look at something. Yes, sir. I wrote that book, as I said, to try to raise funds because I need to control some funds to do things. So people got to understand that the book is not what you call an entrepreneur effort per se, just to become rich. That's very important. Now, the book, if people who don't come to the bookstore or who are out there want to get a hold of an autographed copy, a hardcover, shoot 18 bucks to Bobby Seal, P.O. Box 25688, Philadelphia, PA, 19144. 19144 is the zip code. The post office box is 25688. Just shoot 18 bucks. I'll autograph the copy to you by name, spell your name correctly, and shoot it back to you. I'll save that number so when people call, I can have that number. Now, there's something that uh, Dave Dellinger raised earlier, we let slide, about things that have happened as a result of 60s, some generations before that too, but certainly 60s, the movements that came into being and a certain liberating aspect. Women, of course. Now, yeah. we, we know that your groups had, had problems there too. Some of the guys were yeah. indeed chauvinistic guys toward the very people they're working with, right? But something like... To a degree. I'm not going to... We didn't have economic power, so you can't compare it. Yeah. Uh, you can't compare it to sexism yeah. that exists in corporations where they fire and hire people culturally, but, but something yes. happened. They're all children of our time. Yeah. 
But something yeah. happened, though. Well, I think one has to say that uh, sexism has been in the society from the beginning, just like racism has. I mean, we began with slavery for the black people, and that lasted, you know, for decades. And we began with women uh, being property of the males and not having the right to vote. And it takes a long time to get to get rid of that. But I think that that uh, one of the most uh, powerful forces uh, that has come to well be been re-energized because it was it was always a women's movement but re been re-energized in the last 20 years has has been the women's movement and now that's typical of the press too that during the 70s when the women ha more than half the population were coming alive and demanding their rights the press the media wrote as if there's no social protest anymore and they of course they made sexist jokes of, uh, uh, about the women actually uh, it's interesting see here we are three men all eight of the defendants chicago defendants were men now partly that reflected a weakness in the movement that men tended to have the leadership positions although i must say that the mob always had uh, co chairs mobilization mobilization to end the war in vietnam that we had a co-chair women and men but even the government you see decided to indict eight men whereas there were eight women involved in, in preparing for Chicago and out on the streets there that could with equal justice or equal injustice have been indicted. You know what we should do now? Sort of a, any base we haven't touched or feel like touching, reflections on 60s and today, young, old, yourselves, family, person, anything you feel. Start with Bobby Seale. Start with uh, Bobby Seale. Wow, man. I Anything we haven't touched. It's a lot of things we haven't touched. Me, I run around this country, I tell people about the Equatorial Rainforest being chopped down. I tell them about the fact that 50% of all the oxygen that we breathe on the face of this earth is in fact breathed by human beings. We cannot continue to let that happen. At the same time, we have third world poor people who are encouraged to do that by government economists from the United States of America and elsewhere. I tell people about the fact that we have to uh, dismantle apartheid. That's very, very important, not only in South Africa, because apartheidic forms exist throughout the world in terms of racial relationships. I try to tell people that this whole big argument, all these struggles in there, about, is about how to evolve better human relationships between people, including males and females. I mean, this is very important, that we live in a society... Uh, we live in a world that's much more interconnected than it was even 20 years ago, even 20, 30 years ago. I mean, we could take a supersonic transport to China, leave on a Friday, get there, visit China for the weekend, and be back here Monday morning for work or school. I'm saying that um, it's, it's a, fa a fast-paced, computerized, scientific, technological, social order. We lack a balance of political and economic power relative to government frameworks and systems in practically every country and throughout the world. Um, and, 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 and trying to contribute to make a better society, I say that our goal objective, and I don't give a damn whether it's the black community with black unity, it must be defined in terms of a goal objective of some kind of cooperational human relationships, you know. And that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Abby Hoffman. Well, um, October 14th, there'll be national demonstrations in Washington Department of Education. Um, this will be the first time since uh, the early 70s uh, that uh, national demonstrations have been organized by students, uh, have been foc uh, focusing on uh, student issues such as high tuition, uh, taking away of uh, minority study programs, uh, student loans programs, etc. Uh, I'm an advisor to that. I'm helping them. Uh, I work in... Uh, Pennsylvania fighting the uh, second largest utility company in America, Philadelphia Electric Company, which wants to bring us another three-mile island, nuclear plant, wants to steal the waters out of Delaware. I fight uh, bladder cops, urine testing, which is the most serious privacy invasion in our time, uh, against the war in Central America for eight years, which, by the way, the countries have lost. Um, I would say of all these... Um, I like to pick issues where I can see a strategy from a beginning and to an end. And of all the issues that I fight in, 
environmental issues are really the saddest and most depressing because although as a good organizer you can organize people and win some battles you turn around and you see the wars being lost you you'll you'll clean up a stream and you turn around the oceans being lost and uh, it's very important uh, that uh, we really uh, come to understand uh, the war that we as a people have been having with the earth in a way it's kind of more corrupt more evil than just people fighting each other because the earth has no vote no arms Dave Dellinger Yeah well I guess with so little time and so many issues and of course I support uh, all the issues that uh, Abby and and Bobby have spoken about but I guess I'll say that I think the most important thing is to believe in oneself and believe in one's own best impulses and instincts and not to get snowed by the society, not to get snowed into thinking, oh, you can't win, you can't accomplish anything. I mean, I'm younger than you are, uh, Studs, but I'm 73 years old, and press, the press asks me always, you know, how do you keep going? And the one time I, you know, I get tired of saying the same thing. I mean, the, the, the evil still exists and, and the joy of belonging to a beloved community of people who are standing together to, you know, for what they believe. But this time I was just taking my breath and wondering what to say. And the guy next to me said, and some of my own age said, do you know any better way to live? And I think that one has to understand that, that there are rewards as well as penalties. I got scared when we kept talking about getting beaten up and That's tear right. gazed yeah. and so forth. You get and more than you put in. You get more than you put in. You, you get more than yeah. you yeah. put in. You, you get the When you joy. fight for justice and peace. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. good way to yeah, end You get more than you put in. We all agree on that. And listening to Dave and Abby and Bobby, I'm thinking of something, especially what Dave just said. Uh, something Dorothy Day, the Catholic ah, activist, yes. once yes. said. Yes. said, why are you doing what you're doing? You could live an easier life. She's a cultured woman, an attractive woman, mm -hmm. and uh, she was very much involved in the world. Why are you doing what you're doing? She says, I'm doing it so that there might be a world in which it would be easier for people to behave decently. You know, could I say a word about Dorothy Day? I was a good friend. We were good friends. Mm -hmm. And she came out to visit us in our communal group when my wife was pregnant, and she said, why don't you come to the Catholic Worker Farm? We have a birthing room there. Anyway, what it amounts to is that I delivered the last three of my children, the last one there in, in the Catholic Worker Farm. And I often say to people, this is that linkage of the personal and the political and the women's movement and the need to do away with our sexism and so forth. I often say the most revolutionary thing that I did was not to go into the South or not to go to Chicago, but the most revolutionary thing I ever did was to deliver three of my own children and to become alive, more alive as a human well, being as a result. That's of a good way to end this, but talking about continuity. That's <laughs> great. Hey, remember and, Fred and Hampton and Mark Clark and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and all the good people and Fannie Lou Hamer, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, remember these people, you know. I mean, I'm just another person still trying to pay a few dues, and I don't mind. That's what we're talking yeah. about. It continues. And Thank you very much, uh, Dave. I think Bellinger. we have to say how good it is to be in Chicago. It's with a wonderful Studs town. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, with Studs Turkle. It is, but with Studs Turkle because he's, he's a beacon. Thank you very much, gentlemen.